fires on the west coast, hurricane down south in New Orleans and that area, floods on the east coast. Everything's fine. And a pandemic everywhere. Every, everything everything is fine, isn't it? This is fine. We're, we're doing our best. Hello, everyone. We're doing our best. I hope you're doing your best. We didn't get to uh, mention what was going on in New Orleans last week and again in that whole Gulf Shore region. Uh, but since then, it's not only been that region, but like I said, California is on fire. We have those historic historically tragic floods over along the East Coast tornadoes over in uh, the Connecticut region and and New Jersey. So if you uh, have been impacted, um, our our prayers, our thoughts, everything is going out to you. So uh, we were talking about this right before we cut on the mics. There have been a number of music schools specifically who have been washed out or destroyed. So please find a a music-related something to contribute some money or some time to if you live in these regions to help with cleanup or or anything. So it's, 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 it's a lot. The world is the world is on fire. The COVID death rate, you you know, you mentioned the pandemic. The COVID death rate is higher than it's been in multiple places mm-hmm. in the United States, mm-hmm. and it's it's easy to just jump in the cover, jump in the bed, and and hide under the covers, and just that's that. But my favorite composer has a different idea. She has some she has some advice for us. Let's take a listen. Sometimes we don't always feel beautiful. Sometimes we have our days where, you know, we feel under the weather or sad or overwhelmed. And I know for me, whenever I have those days, I try to put on my best outfit, my best makeup and my sexy heels. And when you look good, it makes you feel good. And so I really, you know, am a strong believer when you're feeling down, you don't just stay in the bed and just you know, soak in that. You pull yourself together and it it is the beginning of overcoming whatever you're going through. All right. So yes, Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter. Mm -hmm. Since the last time we recorded Triloquy, Beyonce turned the big 4-0. So congratulations to Beyonce. Mm -hmm. 40 years of excellence. You made it. 40 years of excellence. Now, I know it's not easy or even viable to tell folks in these destructed areas to put on your heels and your best dress and and beat your face and and look beautiful. So, you know, we uh, I'm going to acknowledge that first. Um, But also for those of us who are not in those regions, there are so many other uh, oppressions going on that are keeping us down emotionally and in many other ways. Scott, Mm -hmm. what are your heels and makeup and dress? <laughs> how, yeah. how, what do you think about the idea of looking good or your definition of looking good as a first step toward feeling better? Do you have a version of that? I, I'm going to try that, putting on some clothes that I like maybe or something yeah. that I think is flattering because I, I, I'll admit it just to keep the conversation in this ballpark, but you and I have talked that right now I do not like the way that I look. Yeah. I've got a little bit of body dysmorphia going on right mm. now. So as I try to get my shape back, maybe if I bought myself a nice shirt, maybe that would make me feel better. I don't know. But what I can do audio-wise uh, is the everyday, which is make everything sound as good as I can. You know, the uh, all the production aspects that I'm in charge of here and elsewhere. Yeah. I know for me, 
getting up and getting dressed, even though that I spend most days in 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 this apartment, in this studio here, mm-hmm. getting dressed and, you know, looking some sort of way. I, I have to do that because that's really? how so you treat I it get like, started. Like going to the office. I, I really do mm. in, in every way. But, you know, you, you spoke to the audio piece on those mornings when I'm I just don't see what the point of any of this stuff is. You know, my my most rough mornings um, doing some of the voice tracking work uh, that I've been doing for uh, radio stations has sort of picked me up. I see that as like an audio version of putting on my best, especially mm. if I write something or say something that I think is clever because because you know, as as radio people, we're good at cracking ourselves up and mm-hmm. impressing ourselves. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I try to do everywhere I go to impress myself. Because if I can't be impressed by myself, who can? You know what they say: if you can't laugh at yourself, then you, maybe you're not just that very funny. Anyway, and and part of it is laughing to keep from crying again because there's so much going on. So again, you said if, something. There. If if you are in one of these impacted areas, uh, our thoughts and prayers are are really going out to you. Um, we we hope to do everything that we can to yeah. offer a bit of reprieve, maybe a little bit of anger, a couple laughs, all, all this stuff that we do here on this little show of ours. So let's go ahead and jump in. Queen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 115. Thank you, everyone, for dropping by, for returning listeners once again, week after week. Thank you so much for supporting this project and keeping what we do in the zeitgeist, keeping it relevant, keeping it a part of the conversation. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much to the new listeners and to the new world listeners. Thank you so much for checking this out. Triloquy is a podcast that is framed to decolonize the phrase classical music. We take issues, news, stories from our neck of the woods and by our neck of the woods i mean our place on the timeline and place them within and around the uh the general conversation of classical music so thank you so much for dropping by you can get more information on this show on our website triloquy.org you can also make your contributions there and offer some feedback to us as well so thank you so much for dropping by triloquy is made possible in part by the shuttleworth foundation the shuttleworth foundation funds individuals who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it you can find more information on the shuttleworth foundation at shuttleworthfoundation.org i would also like to send a huge thank you to dr kyler and all the folks down at florida state university for making us a part of your service learning program scott last week i announced our interns and Mm -hmm. after doing a little bit of uh reading uh thanks to dr kyler uh i I found that we really need to uh frame this and and peripheral things as you know we all move forward in our own um bodies of work thinking about what it means to have service learners as opposed to just interns so i I quickly uh grabbed uh, an article here this is an article uh 
by uh, Andrew uh, Furco. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Um, they describe service learning programs um, as being distinguished from other approaches to ex- uh, experiential education by their intention to equally benefit the provider and the recipient of the service, as well as to ensure equal focus on both the service being provided and the learning that is occurring. So mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of thinking about that. So as we uh, move forward this semester, I feel so young using the word semester. <laughs> as we move forward this semester, um, the Triloquy and its service learners will uh, have a, a lot of things to learn from each other and to benefit from each other. So shout out to Dr. Kyler and thank you for getting that set up for us. Aren't apprenticeships coming back into the conversation or am I imagining that? I seem to remember seeing quite a few stories recently about uh, people not going to college and rather uh, apprenticing alongside somebody who's a master at some craft. Sure. I don't know if I've seen a resurgence of it, but I feel like I have. When I think about uh, apprenticeships, I think about <laughs> my, the first place my mind goes to is uh, tattoo parlors because it always seems like there's an apprentice in there. Sure. Um, uh, yeah. In the brewery, too. You know? Yeah, of course. So, of course. Um, I, I really feel like if there was some of those more readily available around, I might have went that route. Yeah. We just need to make sure that, you know, these folks are getting paid. I think the I think the yeah. concept of an unpaid internship is is so out of out of vogue that that's gone and I think again that's what makes you know the service learning unique in that it's not just about helping us get some work done it's about providing you know some education along the way mm-hmm. specifically about what this is and how that uh, can be applied to their path so yeah, yeah. shout out to uh, FSU and everyone who's listening and uh, this is movement one. Scott, I'm going to let you uh, take it away this week for Movement One. What, what accidental you got? I've got a sharp here for a, uh, an article that I found in the Washington Post about singer Devon Tynes. And you seem to know his name, didn't you? I knew his name. I think uh, we're connected on Facebook. Yeah, mm. just a, 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 another phenomenal member of the, the, the Black Caucus of so-called classical musicians. Okay, yeah. so uh, as I was reading it, I kind of felt like the article started off describing you and I. Oh, okay, good. Get into it because. Um, but what is the, what is the article? I don't think you've named it or anything. Or did you? Sorry. Opera singer Devon Tynes. Uh, let me scroll all the way up. See, there's a part that I wanted to highlight, and now I'm going to be lost. Oh, you'll find it again. <laughs> um, a star opera singer is challenging classical music with a radical idea listening mm, radical the and, this is yours go ahead i know i know but you were gonna say if you wanted to start with the title then we could start there but no th- the thing is is that uh it starts off just comparing the two different sorts of approaches to fixing things that you and i have mm-hmm. ones and it talks about the foundation of a building or a home or something uh and at what point do you burn it and at what point do you Uh, try to save save what's there and how you and I occupy various (laughs) stances. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, I kind of felt like that was speaking to you and I. Yeah. And um, Devon had a, uh, he was recently named a uh, creative partner with the San Francisco Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra. And that's the first a uh, person of color to have an artistic uh, partnership. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not surprised. So, um, well, we we were talking about in the article, you know, what 
does uh, a period orchestra, uh, an orchestra that plays on period instruments, have yes. to say? Uh, well, and that's one of the things that the article talks about is Devon is trying to contextualize that. Yeah. But also um, playing some new music. They have a series, uh, new music for old instruments. But with- and, and just to make sure that we aren't leaving anybody behind, when we talk about period orchestras or period instruments, what are we talking about? That means that the members are playing on instruments that would have been used at the time or close approximates to the instruments that would have been used at the time. Now, aside from this highlight of Devon Tynes, what has typically been your feelings or reactions or relationship to early music ensembles, period instrument ensembles? It makes me feel like I'm entering into a drawing room or a okay. parlor and and that is not my bag. I yeah. don't I don't like that. That's to me it's the stuffiest. I'm I'm a no key- shade I'm just saying. Yeah, no, for me, no shade but shade. <laughs> I have always skipped over those recordings. I mean, early music period instrument recordings have always gotten the flat for me. Hey, but, but Devon Tynes being, a, if I'm seeing black people involved, that means I need to pay attention now. That means I need to rethink, you know, my traditional notions of, of the use of those ensembles and those institutions. Well, in the broadcast world, too, you have to keep in mind that there's a lot of people out there that do like that. And so there's a space for it and, yep. or you make a space for yeah. it. But um, the, the, the interesting quote that I wanted to pull from it was not only does he have a seat at the table, but he's also performing. They did a gender-fluid version of a Handel uh, Serenata, I believe is what they called it. Gender, yeah, a Handel Serenata. Uh, the production and Tyne's portrayal in particular won accolades, but it left Tyne's wondering what the audiences walked away with, what it meant for a largely white audience to watch him embody the monster. And I'm going to skip down. And he said, I hate that because I have to be the monster, he said. But also, I love that because within the fantasy of performing the show for at least an hour and a half, I'm the most powerful person in the room. And he also talks about being at, you know, literally having a seat at the table behind the scenes and talking about how there will be a minority voice in the room Mm -hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. You had a different take. Well, I mean, what, as as far as what? <laughs> there was one. You, there was a, a spot that was you said sort of challenged you. Okay, let me let me read from here. Um, it says. Early music is a space that has been calibrated for people to be sensitively listening to and engaging with other people. It's just a tenet of Baroque and early music making that collaboration is critical. For me, that shows that there is hope, and this could be a uh, this could be a bit crass, but that there's hope for white people. Okay, let me for, first of all, that was hard to read. It, it was hard for me to read because, for me, I feel like singers and and again attack me on so you know send me all the emails i feel like singers are still four or five steps behind the general conversation of racial equity and racial politics in the arts why do you think that is because there is tiptoeing around this language like let me let me read the sentence again for me that shows that there is hope and this could be a bit crass but that there's hope for white people okay in these early music spaces these concerts who else is there but white people so why do we have to you know tiptoe and say you know it could be a uh, this could be a bit crass and x y and z i I think that is indicative of where the vocal arts um needs to catch up 
to the rest of the game. And it's really exciting that uh, Devon is in this early music space because, again, I always pass that right on by. Who who did that song, Walk On By? Uh, Isaac Hayes. <laughs> I was Isaac Hayes, Walk On By. But now that I'm seeing that there's some movement and some conversation there, you know, I can't help but to pay attention. But I'm, I'm bringing that energy into the space. And I feel like that's something that folks like Devon Ties need to understand. If you're trying to open up this space to more diverse audiences and to black people, you, you need to be ready for us because I'm coming in there for me what made it so hard to read was the simple fact that i heard that somebody had given up hope sure and right now uh, and i know that you feel it as well it, it's it's difficult to keep plotting forward on all fronts oh and, yeah and to hear well at least there is some hope now i don't know but i also that, wanted i also wanted to read from the end of the article here um devon is quoted as saying uh, I think it's too commonly misconstrued that there's some sort of nebulous uber white person monoculture. And I think that's a danger. When you take away the specificity of people's lineages, you take away the variety of human existence. Okay, I get that. You know, there is no um, monoculture or is there? Because from all of the people that I've talked to over my years, especially uh, folks from Europe that moved to the United States, they talk about about and and for better or for worse you know it, it, there's there's no judgment but they talk about becoming white when they come here realizing that yeah. there is yeah. a specific white culture and whiteness that thrives here in the United States and that doesn't mean that that uh, that doesn't even necessarily mean that it strictly draws the racial line something that uh, anyone who lives in South Florida understands is that there are um uh, Latinos and Latinas down there, you know, a specific uh, race, a specific nationality, I should say, that is very much white in that space in in Miami and all those places. So, mm. but that but that whiteness is still a thing. So I I, I hear the argument, but I just. I can't help but to disagree with it. Now, when you um, put that down, when you scale all of these conversations down into classical music and then much less early, early music, yeah. okay, there is a monoculture there that has been traditionally centered and defines those spaces. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. as we move forward, again, I think that we have to not shy away from that idea because I'm sorry, most of the people, well, I, I won't, I'm, I'm trying to get away from, from using that phrase, but I would imagine that when you're in those spaces, you know, how many of those folks have, you know, know, have done genealogy, have done these things to, to know that, oh, well, actually, I'm Welsh or I'm English or whatever. And I'm not saying that nobody knows that because there are a lot of white folks out there that do, you know, ha have that connection in that way. But that is no more relevant to that conversation than if, if they're from anywhere else. I don't think the specificities therein really speak to what the challenges is for those spaces. So as we see early music and period instrument orchestras reach into this conversation, I feel like those spaces need to get more used to the gritty part of the conversation. When I read things like it's too commonly misconstrued that there's some sort of nebulous uber white person monoculture, what I hear in that is sort of an apologetic way or a, or a kid glove way of approaching the conversation because of who is in that space because of the whiteness of those spaces. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'm for just for fun here. Indulge me. Okay. What do you think contextualizing 
that music or that sound for uh, a, a a more diverse audience, or let's say let's just say an audience that includes some black uh, some people of color, yeah. black people. What does that mean? What does that look like or sound like? Yeah, um, the first thing I will say is that that question is asked a couple times in this article, and there's and that's kind of it. And and acknowledging the issue is, you know, yes, we've acknowledged the issue. So folks in these positions of power, folks at the table need to be ready to answer that very question in these interviews and 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 in these articles because we don't see it there. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the first thing I'll say. For me, contextualizing maybe uh, early vocal music, there has to be an acknowledgement of early music beyond Western Europe. You know, when we think about the United States and the formation of our musical cultures, is the spiritual not an early music? It's very much that. And there are institutions that are beginning to um, come on board with that idea, actually, including uh, the the Negro spiritual as a part of the uh, sacred music tradition or the early music tradition. So Mm, I I think that's what it has to be. We, We have to stop pretending that centering uh, Western European culture, Western Western European sounds can be recontextualized for Black folks mm. because why? What what makes that relevant in itself? So I think I hate that word inclusion, but I think we need to include more of what we can consider Black early music in there, or at least you know go find uh, the the John Blank stuff for you know these early Black musicians who are around uh, back in that time that they focus on um, now uh, the the article you did mention I'll, I'll say it again the article does mention new music for period instrument um ensembles mm-hmm. so that means you know there there has to be way more uh there have to be way more black composers represented telling black stories you know mm-hmm. not just a black composer who is writing a, a symphony but a black composer who is speaking to black communities mm-hmm. that's my answer there wasn't an answer in the article that's why i asked so we'll but, see um that no, that helps to clear it up for me a little bit, and we'll just have to keep an eye on what Devon does, what he brings. Yeah, absolutely. So, congratulations to Devon. I'm rooting for you. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, to transition from this accidental, we're actually going to hear from uh, Devon because Devon has such a beautiful voice. This um, was published by the uh, by Lincoln Center. This is a vigil dedicated to the memory of Breonna Taylor. We're going to listen to a little bit of this to transition. far more to the black story and the black experience than the trauma that we have faced. I'm, I'm going to say that first. Mm-hmm. This is a black story. Okay. So when I talk about bringing in black stories into the room, this is music, you know, that can be arranged or written for uh, early music period instrument, you know, on ensemble. I see. That's what I'm talking about. Now, mm-hmm. let me sandwich that with what I said. I understand that there is more to the black story than the trauma, but this is just an example of what I mean. You know, I'm sure there is a an operetta that can be written for period instruments that you know, talk about the uh, electric slide in the way that some of these early music things will talk about the Sarabande or the Minuet, right? Bergamasks. You know, yeah, all, yeah, all of that. 
I'll, I'll, I'll do the electroslide to period instruments. Okay, we'll see. And what a rich voice he has, <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, beautiful voice, beautiful voice. All right, I want to um, move on. I have an a article here. I'm going to give it... I'm going to give it a sharp uh, because shout out to Jesse Montgomery. I'm also going to give it a natural because we have some, there, there's some things in it that I need to address. This is from the New York Times. The changing American canon sounds like Jesse Montgomery. It says some of the spotlight on Montgomery is a product of pandemic restrictions. Many ensembles have made cautious comebacks with small scale pieces for strings, which are the heart of her body of work. But her swift rise to prominence is also the result of orchestras over overhauling their repertoires to more prominently feature composers of color. So when I think about, again, the idea of the changing of the American canon, I see uh, her music and her general aesthetic as having risen to the top, thanks to a bunch of variables together, as this idea of, okay, orchestras, you see, new music isn't so scary. It is, it isn't going to push audiences away. And this is the, this is the example we have. I, I see that, you know, in, in her music. Music and, and in that statement there from the top. Mm. But I, I think it's also important to note, and I would say uh, one of those variables that we speak to when it comes to her music really uh, getting getting that presence is that Jesse Montgomery as a person, you know, even beyond being a composer, as a human being, is completely approachable, completely accessible on social media and just human. I feel like that's relatively new to the sphere of, uh, of uh, Western classical music. I mean, how, how many any other composers have you stood on the sidewalk and um and said a prayer with i'll say well <laughs> um yeah she's very unassuming yeah i mean obviously she you you just you know she's another she's a woman on the street yeah um, yeah uh, she doesn't enter a room like you know some highfalutin composer conductor oh do you have someone in mind let's hear it <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, you're quiet. Okay. Yeah, because they're local. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh, well, that's, I guess that's for Triloquy Unplugged. <laughs> let me uh, let me read a little bit, uh, uh, some more of these things. A couple of the things that uh, Jesse is quoted as saying here uh, challenge me a little bit, and I think is worth a bit of a conversation. Uh, she says here, I think people sometimes consider blackness or a projection of blackness as a political statement, that to be black is to in yourself embody politics and culture and that's a burden actually that's what she says mm -hmm. it's funny because i've been quoted as saying the exact opposite being black in classical spaces in itself is political because those spaces weren't built for us those spaces weren't built to include us so we have in essence forced our way through in in some way you know because it, it wasn't built for us so you know that that challenges me a little bit but i i definitely hear her i i, I see my presence in most spaces as political i mean i was at um, my previous employer for less than a year i think less than a half a year before i was quite literally involved in politics marched down to the capitol you know to be the proof of of diversity when it comes to state funding so i I don't know. I I I I I hear Jesse in saying that. I think that comes from being uh, the person whose music is out there. Her mm -hmm. music has been accepted in a way that is apolitical, in a way that is safe. So I see where that comes from. But for me, I see it as sort of a, a, a political thing. Uh, I wanted to read a, another part portion of this. She says. 
I've been talking with my colleagues of black descent and we're all feeling that sort of thing is being put on. I've been realizing that there's this shared desire to just be able to create without that kind of pressure or expectation that you're going to be the spokesperson for the race or for classical music being better That's or more I'm... diverse or whatever. I mean, yeah. for, for, first of all, what does it mean to be, and no shade, what does it mean to be of black descent? And I understand what it means literally, but I'm black right now. I'm not, right. I am descended from black people and I'm black. I see this, this line of speaking as a way to soften the conversation for the predominantly white spaces in which her music has been accepted. Scott. React. I am, I'm blown away. No, I, that, that's sort of the question that I was bringing up is, um, how how does it feel to all of a sudden be dubbed a representative of a movement? Yeah, and it's hard. It's it's difficult. I'm, because I'm, you said that you were quoted saying something to the opposite. Right. So obviously somebody saw you as a representative of a faction of the movement. Yeah. yeah. So how do you feel about it's, that that mantle? It's tiring. It's fatiguing. It is a lot. So I'm not taking that away from what she's saying. What I am saying is that we need to acknowledge the privileges that some of us have as black folks. I, I have privileges, you know, as a content creator that other folks don't have, you know, the rooms I've been in and, you know, where I've had to be the representative. So I'm, I'm not here to say that it's not difficult, but I hope that as we move forward and as, you know, more select members of black communities gain approval and access to these spaces, especially as composers, we can acknowledge that along the entire way there there are privileges therein. And I think uh, Jesse Montgomery, you know, as much as we love her and praise her and lift her up, we have to make sure that we're always acknowledging that I, at least I feel like I have to acknowledge that her perspective comes from a place of privilege that I have to name mm -hmm. so that we can continue mm -hmm. to push forward so that Jesse Montgomery isn't the one name of a living black woman composer that folks know, you know? Yeah, that, that was another question that I wasn't sure that I wanted to ask. Is that a help or a hindrance to her career and social capital, I guess? Yeah. Does the social status change once uh, a, a person of color reaches a certain stature or prominence? I, I would say that it, it has to, again, to maintain your space in, in these, within these institutions, within these programs. I think it has to. And then you have to keep on doing that. You Then you got to keep it up. Yeah. Now, <sighs> now, with all of that said, I get it because... Jesse Montgomery is someone who's just trying to write music and just trying to get it performed. So all of these conversations that surround the music and the politics, I get it. I get how all of that is not what you signed up for. And I, I hope that uh, Jesse Montgomery can continue to feel comfortable living uh, within her work, within her artistry, and letting that be that, because the world right. needs that right. art. And the world has benefited from that art. I, I just that. hope that alongside that, not behind that, because we like to we like to you know put these conversations behind alongside all of that phenomenal stuff i hope that we will leave room for the conversations of privileges within black communities what it means to have uh, to to hold space uh, to, to to have room in in these spaces and you know what it means to have more folks 
come with us. Mm-hmm. You know, I was reading to, uh, Toni Morrison over the weekend, and uh, in one of her works, she was talking about you know the job of uh, a black person who is free is to free some more black folks. And and look, Jesse is in 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 the weeds of of all of that, definitely doing that work. I just did not see you know, that nuance come through this article. And I wanted to make sure I named that alongside celebrating the great Jesse Montgomery. Yes, I love her music as well, I have to say. So when it comes to, again, the this being the sound of, you know, the, the emerging canon, mm. I wanted to uh, share a little bit of uh, one of her more uh, performed works. This tune is called Banner. I feel like maybe we've had it on Triloquy before, but the general idea is, you know, what does a, an anthem sound like for a contemporary, more diverse people, you know, specifically uh, to the United States, but even around the world, what does that mean? So she uses that, takes that concept, uses anthems from around the world and put it all into this piece of music uh, called Banner, really incredible works. We're going to hear a little bit of this to get to our final accidental. So that is definitely a general aesthetic that is new or, mm-hmm. or relatively new when we talk about uh, the canon. I'm, I'm going to come back, you know, to that that first question I asked you. Do you think, from your perspective, the general audience, the 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 general ecosystem of classical music listeners, is ready for that? What we just listened to for that to be. The general sound, generally what you hear when you turn on a classical station or go to a concert. Are we there from from, you know, in your opinion, from your perspective? I, I think we're on the prep- precipice of it. Yeah. You know, uh, toes sticking over the edge because I'm playing her, her music more and more frequently. Uh, the Minnesota Orchestra featured some of her music in this past season. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think even the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra or Schubert Club did sure. did something yeah. with her recently. So <laughs> her name is out there, and I see what you're getting at now with it. But um, she also writes things that fit very well alongside yeah. all the familiar works. Yeah, I mean, and and that work in particular, you know, I've seen perform live multiple times at this point. Yes, I've- And Strum. I've, yeah, and Strum, yeah, of course. Uh, Starburst, you know, we can we can name yeah. all the really great tunes. Um, so it's there, but again, as, as that New York Times article was saying, one of those variables in her music uh, becoming the cream of the crop was, you know, orchestras needing to have these uh, things that require strings, you know, a slightly smaller, orchestra but again this this fresh sound and it's it, it it just it still seems like an accessory to me because when folks like the Minnesota Orchestra platform this music is that what's right. you know is that the the so-called big piece or is that what's on the first half of the program to get people sort of excited and hearing the hall and X Y and Z that's right. that's what I'm speaking to so um, but 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 that conversation will continue to roll along and uh, huge congratulations to uh, Jesse Montgomery on all the continued success now to that 
it reminded me of another article that um, was in my saved box that I wanted to uh, bring in today. This comes from Forbes.com. Uh, it's from August 1st. Uh, the title of it is Our Obsession with Black Excellence is Harming Black people. Before I read from this article, I've been quoted a couple times in, in other uh, digital things uh, with the phrase black excellence industrial complex. <laughs> I'm sure someone yours? I'm sure someone has said that before me, but but that's just oh, something that okay. I just sort of, you know, have thought of over, you know, the, the course of my work, especially the latter part of this work. So what do I mean by that? The black excellence industrial complex. I feel like uh, and really is working closer to opera that has has brought me here. But it's for me, it's the idea that uh, the status quo, the of uh, the organizations and the, you know, the the indus the industries, the institutions, the institution of classical music in order to maintain a bit of its whiteness, a bit of this stoicness has to approve some blacks, you know, some black folks in it. In, in different fields, whether we're talking about composers, whether we're talking about folks in the orchestras, X, Y, and Z, you have to have a little bit of that for them to maintain what they're doing. And, you know, by propping up the idea of black exceptionalism or black excellence, we're keeping that going. We uh, th There was a downbeat uh, some weeks ago where we kind of talked about that. The, they're sitting at the dinner table and and the guy is explaining, you know, sure. if, if, if you leave the smart ones, I think he said, if you leave the smart ones in the ghetto, they'll figure out how to overturn yeah, you or, you'll, you'll have an or whatever. So, okay, hands. well, first of all, I'm a smart one in the ghetto. So, so and, and we're figuring it out. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, thinking about that just makes me angry. But anyway, let me, so that's what I mean. What, you know, for the record, when I say black excellence industrial complex, that's the concept I have in my mind. Let me read just a little bit uh, of this. This is from the opening. In recent years, the rise of phrases and hashtags like black girl magic and black excellence have gained popularity and prominence. A quick perusal of social media will lead users to millions of tag posts endorsing a black excellence. The promotion of black excellence exceptionalism is rampant. More conversation is needed around how these ideas are harmful to black folks. I had you read this before we um, got started. Mm -hmm. what, what, what do you think of this whole idea? I mean, is, is it blowing your mind right now? Or, or what's your reaction to the idea of naming black excellence or poising individuals up as examples of black excellence being harmful to the broader black community? Well, it's another layer to pull back because um, I don't think that many people go around believing the idea that a black person has to do twice as much to get half as much or yeah. the same or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, I hadn't even uh, been made aware of that idea until, gosh, I, I probably had moved here sure. so in the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah. And it was made real for me at the Sphinx conference Sure, because I heard it all around me and not in the language that you're using here, people talking everyday stuff, yeah, you know, everyday stories. That, yeah. and, and it just, it's all around you if you listen. And that's why oh, I forgot to give this, and I'm going to give this a sharp, you know, huge shout out to uh, Janice Kasama Sayre for uh, writing this really incredible piece. Uh, but what you're speaking to, Scott, is the importance of uh, conferences, you know, in-person meetings like Sphinx. As much as we talk about how, um, you know, <laughs> Sphinx 
in many ways is sort of an example of this black excellence industrial complex. The conversations that happen at the bar and at the, you know, at the, uh, I'm trying to figure out what we call the restaurants where we got the grinders and the, you know, at the diners, you know, mm-hmm. you know, late at night. That That's the stuff oh, yeah. of those conferences, oh, yeah. you know. So that's when the I, real work gets done. Right. So I just really, you know, want to uh, affirm that. Uh, but, you know, I can offer my examples. Uh, the writer here also offers uh, an example that I think most most people can understand. I'm going to read a little bit more here. It says, following the murder of George Floyd, Elijah McClain's story gained greater visibility on social media. Many demanded the arrest of the officers involved, and I think they have. They are getting dealt with now, they for are. the record. Uh, Elijah McClain was repeatedly described as a kind and gentle person who spent time at shelters caring for animals. The emphasis, again, was that a black person who exhibits these positive traits does not deserve to be harmed. This narrative is problematic because it reinforces a notion that a black person who has engaged in a wrongdoing or a crime does not deserve humanity. Mm-hmm. I think that is mm-hmm. very, very poignant and very important to understand, yeah. especially, you know, we, we don't even have to talk about um, somebody getting killed by the police. I, I, I'm, I'm getting on the uh, I'm, we're approaching by the time this comes out, it'll be the one year anniversary of, of my independent work. So, you know, the, I, I'm tying that in because when anybody black falls from a position or is, you know, ousted or whatever, the automatic thing is, you know, the sort of judgment call of right or wrong and and what were they doing? What was I doing? Are, are they a good person? And as much as I'm ashamed to admit it, I'm grateful that I can lean on the idea that most people think of me as, you know, a so-called good person, good in in quotations. You know, mm-hmm. Garrett wouldn't do anything that is actually um, harmful or 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 you know whatever. You know, but again, what if? You know, I I got on the microphones last year, you know, in response to the murder of George Floyd saying, uh, fuck the police and da 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 and blah, 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 and using real language, you know, that that will put it all in a different light. And when we again going getting back to the article, the idea of, you know, black excellence and black exceptionalism, it it creates a thin, thin, thin sliver of black folks who are allowed to make a mistake. Because, you know, if you make a mistake, you are less deserving than those who we have already affirmed as, you know, exceptional and the and the good blacks. You know, if the hashtag was good blacks, it would be a, it, the, the issue would be, you know, more more, uh, uh, you know, uh, obvious. That's mm-hmm. the word I'm looking for. The, the issue would be more obvious. And I, I really appreciate this article for uh, pulling pulling that out. And, and I think we really need to do a, a more intentional job of applying that to the arts and to art spaces. And I think that it ties in well with the canon conversation that we had, because, you know, what if a composer like Jesse Montgomery is put up on a pedestal mm-hmm. and and people are all of a sudden going to be gunning for her fall? Like like it said in hip hop all the time, they love the come up, and the only thing they love better than the come up is the comeback. 
you know. So mm. there's always, you know, that tightrope that black folks are, or I mean, anyone, surely, but definitely black folks, that tightrope of, all right, I've been deemed as black excellence. I've been affirmed in these ways. What do I have to do to maintain that status? That's, that's a part pressure. of, that's, a, that's pressure. And that's, that's a, a part lot. of what I talk about yeah. when I talk about the black excellence industrial complex. I want to um, just read the, the final few sentences uh, from this uh, before we uh, get into the final, uh, not the final movement, the second movement. Um, it says here, living in a world designed to keep you confined is black excellence. There needs to be a shift in what we glorify and venerate. Black excellence is not just the firsts. Let me read that part again. Black excellence is not just the firsts who accomplish the unimaginable. Black excellence is not just those who achieve accolades and awards. That part as well. Black excellence is simply existing in a world that is so that so desperately wants to destroy you. The point I want to make in reading that final bit before we get uh, to the second movement. It's been used, when, especially when we uh, back in the days of, of, of they weren't saying DEI in the 90s. They were saying, um, what, what was the movement where they were trying to hire Affirmative action. Affirmative action. Thank you. Okay, so this was really a, a I feel like a, a a narrative back then, but I, you see it a little bit in in conversations of DEI these days. The idea, oh well, you just got that job, that position, whatever, because you're black. Okay, I agree with this writer in saying it's black excellence to just survive in this nonsense, in this hellhole. Okay, so yes. Let's let's flip that around. If somebody is trying to use the uh, the the ammunition of you got that just because you're black, tell them yes because by being black in this country and this ecosystem of classical music, I've already earned. I've already proven myself. So if that's what somebody wants to say to me, I'm gonna say yes. You should have been born black, I guess. Mm. And that's what y'all you mm. <laughs> that's what y'all need to say as well. So to that, I want to share um, an ensemble uh, that maybe you haven't heard of. You know that maybe has not been featured. In the New York Times or on your favorite public radio station, but they are excellent because beyond all odds, they are still here doing their things. I know uh, this ensemble is called Decompose, the Decompose String Quartet. I know the individuals of this um, quartet. I know some of the struggles that many of them have gone through. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're homies. You know, I, we read the Facebook threads. We do all that. And it's important, you know, for, for all of us to affirm each other in this way. So huge shout out out to decomposed uh the we're kind of sub-theming beyonce because you know she turned the big 4-0 so we're gonna listen to decompose um play a little beyonce here this is from their beyonce homecoming medley to get us into our second movement What was the ensemble that Devon Times worked for? 
<laughs> what, what, what ensemble did you say that was? That ensemble is the San Francisco Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra. Hey, y'all. That that's what I need to hear. There's an arrangement out there. That's what I need to hear. There's if y'all play some Beyonce, you 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 have my attention. I'm I'm not com- I'm not spending a, I'm not spending money to listen to Bellini and Tomasini and Purcell and all those people. That's that's not what we're doing. So Devon, I hope you're listening. Get them to play some black music. Let's hear some Beyonce. But play some Beyonce, and I will do everything I can to be in the audience with bells. On them. All right. We're in the <laughs> forward to seeing the bells. <laughs> we're in the second movement here, uh, where we're taking the second ending. We uh, take a piece of music that we've been repeating in our earbuds and our speakers over and over again all week, and we take the second ending and talk about why we were doing so. So last week, Scott, uh, I was speaking to the idea of uh, new music, just you know, generally what what should be allowed, how we need to open it up, and you know, when I mix that with my desires to just leave this place <laughs> leave this place called planet Eject. earth <laughs> I, I went back to a work by uh, mason bates called mothership and i, I searched I, I didn't see a a clip of this in the triloquy vault so maybe i haven't played any of this before but for folks who don't know mason bates is an incredible uh living composer out there blurring the lines between orchestral sounds and electronic sounds uh he has a violin concerto that's really incredible yeah, that, yeah. that that i love um but the piece of music of his that most folks know is called mothership so um I'll I'll frame this the the way I framed it the first time I played it on the radio down in Knoxville because this was in regular rotation. But the first time it was actually during February, and every day that month I was starting my show with a Black History fact. So whatever day of the month this was, I talked about the first Black man to go into space. I mm. tell this whole big story about it, and then I press play on this. Let's take a listen. Isn't it fun to hear those sounds and think about space and how jazzy it could be? Um, you know, what kind of spacesuit do you have on when with this music playing? Naked. It's not. It's oh, you say you naked. <laughs> That's my spacesuit. <laughs> it's not just a reg. For me, it's not just a regular old spacesuit. I see neon lights. I see some bright and really interesting colors, and all of that is inspired by you know. Listen, just listen to this. Listen to the groove. Incredible piece of music by Mason Bates. I've been involved in performance of the performances of this from both sides of the stage. So I've performed it twice uh, on stage, and I've seen it uh, in concert. I think 
three times. One time by this really small regional orchestra uh, in East Tennessee. Shout out to the uh, Johnson City Symphony. And, you know, after it ended, I think maybe even during the intermission, the, there was some, you know, I'll just say it, there was some snobby gays sitting next to us. And they're um. like, oh, I loved that uh, Tchaikovsky that they played. But the mothership, I don't know. That, that was just a little bit too much for me. So <laughs> the, the jury is still out for some people. But um, that, what do you think? What that, do you think? That on a concert with some uh, Heinrich Schwartz. Yep. That would be killer. Like uh, Whammums, Walk a Mile in My Shoes. Sure. Along with that, that would be tight. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, and, and I love that, um, you know, electronic person, I was DJ or whatever has to be a that, part of it. That yeah. blip. That little blip beat going on was was grabbing me. Yeah, the uh, the the piece of music premiered, I think, back in two thousand five in Sydney, Australia, in a performance given by the YouTube Symphony. So, oh. uh, YouTube gave uh, had held auditions uh, years ago. Everybody uploading their stuff to YouTube, and then the organization chose people and uh, sent them down there. And this was one of the pieces that premiered. You know, so Damn. wow, what what a time! You last week you were talking about so many possibilities. So much. Possibility. We were talking about Mary. More in them. That's what I think about when I hear this music and that general aesthetic of what a Friday night at the symphony could be. Like what it could be like. It could it could be like that. Uh, the other thing that I want to uh, make sure folks understand is that no two performances, no two recordings of this piece of music are the same. There are two mm. sp- uh, spots in the piece that have uh, improvisatory soloists, you know, mm. and the idea is that you're beamed up by the aliens and they're like, okay, girl, play me your music. And and so that's gonna that's gonna vary from person to person. Show me right? what you got. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> that's gonna vary from person uh, to person. So uh, when I performed it uh, the first time down in Knoxville, uh, the first soloist was a guitar player, which was really <laughs> cool. You know, and and there was actually a competition with the KSO. You know, who wants to play with us and mm. you know show us what you got. So the first soloist was a guitar player, and the second soloist was an electronic bass clarinet player like it was bass clarinet played into a microphone with loop pedals and all this stuff. oh, oh so, i was gonna say an yeah <laughs> oh, no 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 not yeah. like that but ba- a very much a bass clarinet but you know put through all those hmm, processes cool. so cool. you know an opportunity there to um engage the community you know maybe one of these performances uh can have a a, a rapper in it or someone who i mean what is just the instrument i don't know i feel like an electric guitar somebody who really for real knows what they they're doing oh they, they could they could up. they could lay something down here so uh shout out to uh mason bates if you don't know the piece mothership it has been in my earbuds all week i'm probably going to listen to it a few more times because i like that groove to it all and uh yeah that's 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 my that's my second ending this week so yeah once again last week we were really <laughs> far apart in what we brought in and i think we are again today uh i've never brought up any tom waits music I don't as think much as you talk about him. I brought up any Tom Waits music. First of all, podcast. who is Tom Waits? Tom Waits is a, a phenomenon. He is an aesthetic. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you stand. Okay. So he uh, <laughs> uh, he's he's uh, writes a lot. Wrote a lot of like travelogue sort of uh, mm-hmm. um, somebody who shot for the heights and came short. You know, a lot of stories hmm. about the every person that almost yep. made it and yep. then ends up a footnote. 
somewhere or completely forgotten. The, the people who, who didn't get the Black Excellence moniker. But anyway, go on. Go on. And actually, hey, it's funny that you bring that up because when I first, <laughs> when I first caught on to him, to me, he reminded me a lot of Howlin' Wolf. I thought he was okay. black. The oh, way, really? Yeah, the way that he sang, I thought he was black. It was very raspy and guttural. Yeah, and seasoned. And, yeah. And, uh, and it just it sounded so pained. Mm-hmm. But what Authentic, I want... Authentic, maybe, even, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and what I wanted to bring in today was something from his uh, early years release. This is very special because I'm, I'm sure that everybody listening right now and you two were all raw right we're all oh yeah ground up and mm-hmm. dealing with stuff yeah and like earlier when we were watching the latest rick and morty when yeah. rick is going through and laying waste to all these other ricks mm-hmm. and the expression on his face was just blank yeah i i'm doing that i'm i am in the fake it till you make it mode mm. so hard at this mm-hmm. point but you just make sure you well, make one it. afternoon i was cleaning up in the spare room and I found an unopened 180 gram album of Tom Waits' The Early Years that I had forgotten wow, that I okay, bought. Okay. So to go and lay that on the deck and to lower the needle was it was it was like imagine every single muscle in your body is tense and then you get that shot of like pre-op medication or something you go oh yeah except it's tom waits and it's tom but this is the era where he's singing very much uh, melodically um and it's uh, a song that when i first heard it i said that's a wedding song right there that's a wedding song and i started to uh try to learn it on guitar because I was going to sing it for the woman that I would marry. Mm, mm, mm. There's still time. It's yeah, there's yeah. still time for and you to called, learn it. <laughs> oh, I, I, oh, oh, I learned oh, it back it then. <laughs> and I learned it back then, and yes. I, I got it back out. I got it back out, and I'm I'm dusty with it, but I I'm going to put it back together because it's such a beautiful song. And there is also on this track the guy that you were paying attention to was the trumpet player. Yeah, let, let, let's 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 listen to a little bit first. Sure. It's, it's the trumpet for me. It's the trumpet for me. This is not a, well, you know, all respect respect to Tom Waits. You know, there's, there's no shade in this comment I'm about to make. This is a duet. This this isn't only a Tom Waits performance to me. True. That trumpet, that muted trumpet, just almost wants to choke me up. You can hear the the struggle. You can hear the heartbreak. Or you can hear the monotony of every day or whatever you're struggling with 
in that trumpet? Who is that? Yeah, his name is Tony Taran, and he's a member, or one of the. He's a, a at one time he was a member of the Wrecking Crew, mm-hmm. which was a, a a loose group of sort of the mighty handful of the sixties. Sure. Uh, you know, they they would do they were session musicians. Yeah that would just come in and play behind Frank Sinatra, Nancy Sinatra, the monkeys. Mm-hmm. You know, every monkey track that you heard is they're just by the, the wrecking, boys, cl- the wrecking, the wrecking crew. crew. Right. They're the they're the guys that are really making it happen. And that had to be a fun gig to learn so much repertoire over the years. And then you could also go to the co- you could go to the bar and have you a beer don't have without, <laughs> without anybody, you know, mobbing you. You know, yeah. you could just be a per- you could go and be a person when and, you're done. And, and still get those residual checks. That's right. Mm-hmm. But that is the aesthetic that Tom brings that I like. Sort of the back room, um, one light over the performer, yeah. smoky. You know, yeah. that, that sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't have Red Bull there. And uh, <laughs> just to let you know, I am ready to play that song. Okay, well, we go get you there. Um, <laughs> yes, amen. I, this, I want to, well, first of all, <laughs> I get really quick back to the trumpet. Which one of these conservatories are training the kids to do that? It said. Uh, in the literature that I found that most of the wrecking crew was classically and jazz trained. Okay. <laughs> so my my question remains. <laughs> I don't I don't hear this sexiness. And and if and if you're a trumpet player and you got something to say, send me the recording. Prove me wrong. I'm, I'm not hearing a lot of this sexiness coming through a lot of these master classes and these student performances I'm hearing. That that is that I'm going to return to this. You know, to I'm sit- gonna repeat this. After after the whole week, month, year, whatever, to find that and lay it down brand new. Mm-hmm. What a sonic experience and just and uh, a release. It was a release that I needed in that moment. When we talk about de- decolonizing the phrase classical music and the way, you know, I think you can go all the way up to hip hop and make a case for uh, classic music therein. Do the same thing for, you know, maybe not only this piece, but the general aesthetic of Tom Waits. To what extent is Tom Waits a classic part of culture, a classic musical part of culture? Hmm. I think that over the course of his career, he's fashioned uh, a persona that you remember. Mm hmm. He also is the sort of talent that has invented himself, reinvented himself several times and also branched out into other medium. Mm -hmm. So he's also uh, had a a great career as a character actor. You can see. Oh, really? Yeah. You can see him in uh, in Mystery Men. He's hilarious. In in my all time favorite film, The Fisher King, Mm -hmm. he has a great bit in there. But if you go and you fire up um, um, the. Oh, it's the Cohen, uh, the Ballad of uh, Buster Scruggs, Ballad of Buster Scruggs on Netflix. And he plays the prospector, the grizzled old prospector. So um, he's going to be around, you know. Now, you said when you were first getting into Tom Waits, 
you thought that he was black or that he could have been black. Mm-hmm. Don't don't let me find the article where some artist is talking, you know, talking about Tom Waits oh, and saying, my whole fucking flow. <laughs> oh, word don't let me find it. Don't let me <laughs> don't let me find out that he stole somebody flow and, and now they can't sing. But he said, OK, it's mine now. OK, um, yeah, okay. there's a healthy there. There is a healthy dose of Howlin' Wolf in there. There's, you know, Captain Beefheart probably. And there okay. are there is plenty of um hang on i just lost my train of thought um oh yes here it is i'm sorry uh it is rumored that heath ledger's take on the joker is based on an interview he saw in australia with tom waits oh really yeah okay is tom waits australian no he's okay. uh, yeah he's born right he was born in california okay yeah shout out to tom waits Thank you for bringing that in. I'm listening. I am going to listen to the trumpet. Don't <laughs> don't let me find the instrumental. <laughs> Because 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 that's just the version I'll all listen to. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not you know I'm not trying to disrespect Tom Waits, but I really I really feel like you know we need to. Uh, this is a great example of how the orchestration about how the the setting in which these singers sit on these songs, we have to give that the flowers as well. Right. Because when you played that uh, in the car for me earlier today, that, what did I say? That trumpet. You said that trumpet That hits. trumpet. That is a duet. So um, shout out to Tom Waits and uh, to the Wrecking Crew. I, do they have their own music? Is there like a Wrecking Crew album out there or something? Well, um, just about any album that you put on in the 50s and 60s probably. But um, uh, Glenn Campbell was a, a member of the Wrecking Crew, and he oh, okay. had a great career as a okay. frontman. Some classic American music. Amen. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we're about to get into the third movement. Today's guest is Jamie Sharp. I was so glad to get to feature uh, Jamie on Triloquy. Uh, Jamie comes from the opera world. She is a mezzo-soprano, originally from Florida, but based in the uh, Cincinnati area. And now she's working uh, on her master's degree. And I'll post her website where you can see all of her musical accolades. But uh, one of the reasons why I really wanted to get Jamie on is because she is one of the many folks in the classical sphere, uh, specifically in the black classical sphere, that plays sort of double duty as a performer and as an arts administrator. I think that's really cool. So I met Jamie through the Black Opera Alliance. She is the administrative director. I, we have weird titles, but I'm communication something something. So the she <laughs> impresario, right? Uh, but uh, Jamie is um, ad, uh, works in administration for the Black Opera Alliance. Uh, she has uh, she runs a, a virtual opera company called Opera Next Gen. I actually made a contribution to Opera Next Gen. I hope all of you will as well. Uh, she's also the co-founder and executive director of Hear Us, Hear Them Ensemble. So really um, balancing between you know the performance and the behind-the-scenes things that make more of the performances possible. So we talk about some of that uh, double-duty uh what, what she hopes for working on both sides uh, of the fence and all sorts of other things. But where we actually start, um, I asked Jamie, you know, not where she fell in love with music, but where she when she understood that changes needed to be made. And she talks about um, how her father actually influenced, you know, her her so-called awakening of, wow, we need to um, fix this up. So in honor of that, to transition us, and again, we're honoring Beyonce today, I had to pull in, you know, one of my favorite performances. Y'all forgot that Beyonce can can body y'all in country as well. We like to pigeonhole 
um, artists yeah, for certain true. reasons, especially folks who don't know her catalog. Uh, she has done, uh, we've already talked about her flip on Ave Maria back when I had Maria Ellis on the show. Shout out to Maria Ellis. Um, obviously, uh, she has bodied the R&B for decades now. Beyonce is an incredible rapper, as we have seen on a few tracks, laying it down, and she can even do the country. So um, to honor Jamie Sharp and her convers- the conversation we begin with about her father, we're going to listen to a little bit of Daddy Lessons as performed by Beyonce and the then Dixie Chicks back in November of 2016, because shout out to Beyonce. She's body in all the genres out here. Here's Beyonce, Daddy Lessons, and here's my conversation with Jamie Sharp. Came into this world, daddy's little girl. Daddy made a soldier out of me. Daddy made me dance. Daddy held my hand. But daddy left his whiskey with his teeth. Yeah, um, I think one of the most pivotal moments for me was seeing how uncomfortable my father was attending performances of mine. Oh, wow. Um, Because of, you know, I mean, he's a big black guy. He didn't, you know, he finished high school. He doesn't have higher education. Seeing how uncomfortable he was in a space that he felt was so elitist right and that you had to be not only articulate to a certain degree but also within the art form itself I feel like there's this expectation that when you attend an opera you know inherently everything about opera you go to the symphony right and you already Mm -hmm. have like this kind of knowledge of of what came before and I don't feel that as much in like theater performances you know especially with things like Hamilton right you're getting a lot of people that are not um involved in the performing arts at all attending those um but yeah for me I I really started to to reflect on that and notice um just how audiences were and how I have even been treated as an audience member at classical performances right even this kind of unsung uh dress code and other etiquette that is expected right at some of these events that someone may not know right if they Mm -hmm. haven't if they haven't um been in that environment before and kind of seeing that right through him even at things like recitals and and more intimate performances that I had um really grew on me because that's all the fault of this industry right that has nothing to do with him um and that we're at a point where if we can't even be accessible to our audience members and those that we're inviting to join the art right what are we going to do about about the folks on stage? Yeah. Did he have a relationship with music before you got into music at all? No. Oh, no. wow. Oh, wow. I, and it still is such an interesting thing to explain because I think he, he understands what I do, you know, to a degree, uh, but still not quite right. The whole classical music industry is just not... Um, you know, something he didn't, he didn't grow up with any kind of arts. Um, And so understanding all the nuances and like careers, right. Especially now with me being an administrator and not just a performer um, is just a really, really foreign thing to him. 
Is is being a 100% performer something that you even aspire to anymore, considering all of the community engagement work and audience development work that needs to be done? Yeah, it's definitely changed for me. Um, you know, even just going into my bachelor's, right? And I had a, a view of what I thought success looked like um, just in this industry as a whole, right? Uh, surrounding performance. And it's like, you know, you sing at X, Y, and Z house. And then by the time you're 30, you've done this, this, and this. Um, and I've really just reshaped, I guess, what what my aspirations are in life. Mm-hmm separate from my career. Okay. I think there is such a focus, especially in academia, right? That if you're not, if your art isn't just encompassing you completely, you're not focused on it enough. Right. And I've always had other interests um, and just right general hobbies and things that I like to do that don't have to do with opera mm-hmm. um, and to be like shamed out of, you know, that because it was taking away from my focus of how much I was in the practice room or, you know, how dedicated I was to X, Y, and Z. Um, and I've just really learned like to advocate for myself and that, no, I can like other things and I do like other things and I don't want that to change. Right. And for me as a performer now, I'm thinking, Oh, well, I mean, I, there are some things I like to sing and some things I don't like to sing. Right. And if I do, performing hundred percent. And that's what I need to pay the bills. I don't have as much of a say in the type of repertoire that I'm performing, the houses that I'm singing at the colleagues that I'm working with. And that just doesn't sound like what I want to do anymore. I would rather have a balance between multiple things that I like, which a lot of which is, you know, on the more operational side, um, and then be able to kind of pick and choose what art interests me. Right. Cause at, at the end of the day, for me, it's about yeah, performing, but like, what is that performance doing for us? Right. I don't want it to be a, oh, I need to, I need this check. Right. So I'm just going to show up and sing and then dip. Um, That is not fulfilling to me at the moment. Right. And that may change um, as I go along, but I don't know. Admin has just kind of given me, brought my spirit back. Right. And my hope for this industry to be able to change and, and I'm just going with it, right? I'm just yeah. going to do both. I'm tired of people telling me it has to be one or the other. Right now I'm doing both and maybe that'll change, right? And I decide I don't want to do admin or I decide I don't want to sing anymore. Um, but that'll be up to me. It won't be up to anyone else. Yeah, it's kind of a continuing conversation. I I, I talked with um, Dr. Antonio Kyler a couple of weeks ago just about the idea of being admin or doing something that's peripheral to performance doesn't mean that you didn't make it or or couldn't make right. it or anything. I mean, are, is, is that journey one, that mental journey one that you're done with? Are you, you know, happy with explaining to a person? No, actually, you know, I, I could be doing that, but this is what I prefer. Yeah, I think I'm actually finally at that point. Right. And And, and being in school, it makes it a lot more difficult because I'm still in a performance degree. I'm in my master's for voice. Mm -hmm. So the colleagues that I'm around still have that mindset, especially in that young artist atmosphere, right? That's, that's what the focus is, is performing. And so I know it can be off putting or confusing to some people that it's like, well, I'm performing, but I also run an opera company and I also run an ensemble and I also, you know, work for black opera Alliance and I'm involved in this and the other thing. But I'm also, you know, singing alongside you on stage at school mm-hmm. um, is not, you know, there's just not a lot of at least current students at my institution that are doing that. Um, sure. But I'm finally at the point where 
I'm like, no, like this work has been, you know, we've, we've done the work, like these are legitimate companies. I need to stop downplaying like my own efforts or my team's efforts because they don't look a certain way, you know, like mm-hmm. Opera Next Gen is a full-fledged company. We have a huge following. We have a huge team and we're doing really awesome things and I'm so proud of it. And I, you know, if, if someone doesn't recognize that, right, we're not LA Opera, but that's fine. And I don't care. And I don't ever want to be right. Yeah. I like this grassroots community-based organization where it's collaborative and we actually have say in what's being put out. Yeah, we're going to get to Opera Next Gen in a bit. But, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is the fact that there are so many folks strictly on the performance side who don't really have the perspective of the admin side and, and vice versa. With having your foot in both worlds, I wonder if there are uh, standout issues that you found that admin folks don't really see or understand because they haven't spent so much time on the on the performance side of things. Mm, yeah, Um, I mean, what I've noticed in administration is there are a fair amount of performers, right, that then transit make the transition, but not a lot who are singers. I think with the pandemic, we're starting to see a change in that. Um, But in the offices that I've worked in, it has been a lot of folks who are instrumentalists Mm. or even actors, right, coming from a theater background. Um, But I am... I mean, they're, I mean, they exist, right? You know, Christian Brown's an example. She was a singer before she went and then worked at Dallas Opera. Um, but there's definitely not as big of a space, right, for those who were in opera and then transitioned to admin. Um, and then overall, you start to see patterns of those, you know, on the more executive level, right? You kind of have your, your day-to-day manager of this, coordinator of this. When you get higher up, right? Mm-hmm. Not as many of those folks are performers or have any kind of arts background. And that's always been astounding to me that you see, you know, general directors who have a fancy MBA or a law degree, and that's all fine and dandy, but then they're making decisions for artists Yeah, yeah. when they've never been in that position, right? Mm-hmm. They're dictating how auditions look, what kind of programming is going on, and then they've never been in that position themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely know that story from the programming side of things. But it's interesting that you talk about um, more instrumentalists being in those spaces than singers. So I guess uh, to us to a similar point, what are the uh, the dark spots that we instrumentalists have? You know, what 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 are, what are we coming to the table not understanding when it comes to the needs of singers specifically? Hmm. Um. And I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll quickly throw one thing out, you know, something yeah. that I've had to uh, shift my language around is even the word musician. It's so easy to say, OK, musicians go over here, singers mm-hmm. go over here. You know, yeah. <laughs> no, we get a lot of that. Yeah, um, I think, you know, I can't speak as much to those in the more emerging artists further along in their career path, but. I don't know, because it, it's so different for instrumentalists, this young artist kind of trajectory, right. the way that singers are thrown into it. And I, and that's something I've really been reflecting on, right? Especially sitting on the other side of the table and now being someone that runs auditions. Um, what we are subjected to and just expected to take as far as fees um, and requirements for travel and even dressing a certain way, right? That was hmm. like, a big thing for me, you don't, you know, I have had comments about my natural hair or having braids in, um, I have nose piercings, right? All of those type of things that I feel like are not as prevalent in 
the instrumental industry, at least sure. around this age, um, that is just like, yeah, fall comes and then you just blow a thousand dollars and you go and sing for these, you know, companies and then they pay you not enough to live off of. And then that's just what you do until you're 30. And then when you hit 30, you age out of everything. And at that point, if you haven't made it, um, then that's kind of it. And I, I, I think it's, I don't think, um, a lot of administrators maybe have a grasp on that as well. What that's like firsthand, right. That kind of, um, anxiety and pressure that we're put under. Yeah, I'll, I kind of want to get into that a little bit more. So there aren't people graduating with a bachelor's or a master's in voice and just jumping into the field that young artists gauntlet is just a part of it for everyone. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, you you'll you'll have folks right that there's always exceptions. Sure. Sure. Right. You know, especially um, tenors and basses. I think it's a lot easier for them um, because there are just so many specifically sopranos. Right. Um that are fighting for <laughs> there's a lot of y'all <laughs> there's a lot yeah i'm a mezzo so there are less of us um okay. there are a lot there are a lot of sopranos um yeah i mean it's just the the traditional path let's say right is you do your bachelor's you do your master's you do a young arts program a year-round young arts program and then from there you kind of maybe get picked up by management go to europe for X amount of time and then you come back and start booking, um, you know, but that being said, there are folks who don't have a master's and are successful. There are folks who, you know, I think Julia Bullock's a big one who never did a major young artist program and she's had a very successful career, but I would also say her career is unconventional in the type of programming and flexibility that she has with all the, you know, recital and concert work that she's doing is very different. Um, than what most people do, right? Yeah, yeah. Is is there an uh, 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 image or a, an idea of a different sort of trajectory? I mean, are, are folks talking about what it would look like if, you know, X opera company just hired from the local school and then, you know, help folks build their resumes that way? Is, is there a different structure that people are starting to imagine that, you know, leaves out the problems of these young artist programs? Mm. I mean, I think, there's kind of two sides to that, right? With the larger companies, there is a lot more um, noise around getting rid of age limits because I think that is a big thing that I am finally like, oh no, Jamie, you're young. You can take time, you know? But when they say 30 and they act like that's kind of your cap, right? You mm. only have until you're 30. Um, that just, you know, it, it makes everything feel like it's just passing you by, right? You have to get things done in a certain amount of time. So I think there is more advocacy for getting rid of that age limit and just overall taking time, right? Yeah. Um, th th there's no rush. And I'm, I'm finally starting to realize that, right? Like if I wanted to go and just take three years off, I'm still a singer, mm -hmm. right? But there's this idea that if you're only as good as the last thing you did, if you're not constantly working, then you're not succeeding in your profession. And so I, I I hope that that continues, right? Just general advocacy for oneself and like for artists um, in getting rid of fees also, because that's a huge barrier, right? Um, and that's kind of for larger companies. I think we're seeing a lot more grassroots organizations pop up and that's why they're garnering so much popularity and support because that's what they're doing, right? When I was at Michigan, 
I performed with Opera Moto, which is a small company in Detroit. And that was the most fun I ever had being on stage. We did an almost all black dialogues of the Carmelites. Okay. Right. And that is something that I'll remember for the rest of my career, you know, oh. but it was because they Moto developed for singers in the Detroit community. Right. Not not like this whole big operation having to do with just bringing money in or anything like that. Right. It, it, it was first and foremost for artists. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that there are more organizations popping up like that as artists just have ideas for projects. Um, and that, I mean, personally, that's what I like to see. Right. And that's what to me almost seems like a more appealing career is having some kind of job that pays the bills and then being able to do things like that on the side. Um, and I think a lot of people are, are starting to realize that as well. So. Yeah. And getting that job on the side is sort of one of the major challenges, at least I've seen from a lot of uh, performers, a lot of artists you have, you know, as it stands right now, you definitely have that portfolio style career and resume that I feel like could get you into many doors, but maybe, you know, it must have been difficult getting that first gig. How did you get your first verified I work in arts admin gig? Yeah. Um, so it's actually through UMS, the University Musical Society. Um, they're a performing arts organization in Ann Arbor. Um, I saw a sign for the organization. They have a student committee. Um, and freshman Jamie thought that this meant we just go to performances together. And that's like what it was basically, um, and which it is, but it also was handling, um, student like relations and advertising across campus. Um, it really is so mind blowing now, not being in Ann Arbor anymore, reflecting on the fact that when I lived in Ann Arbor, walking distance from my dorm, I saw the New York Phil, Berlin Phil, Yo-Yo Ma, Audra McDonald, wow. like, they, I mean, they brought in everyone. Mike, Camille Brown, dancers came. Um, and then I saw, you know, a bunch of new theater. I mean, just everything right there, right? For a student ticket price as well. Mm -hmm. And so many students just didn't realize that. You know, we have the historical Hill Auditorium um, where MLK has spoken. And, and you walk by when you're on your way to class every day. And there are some folks who have never given it a second thought, never been in that space. Um, and so once I started just attending the student committee meetings, seeing what that was about, um, getting in the office, they just did such a great job at bringing in staff members that work for UMS to talk about what they did, um, what an arts admin career looks like. Um, and then I got really hooked from there, became president of the student committee and then also interned in the marketing department for UMS. So I think that was really my, my launching point within admin. Yeah, thank goodness for programs like that, because, you right. know, even, even at this point in my career, you know, I, I feel like I can't walk up to, you know, uh, I don't know, X Foundation or whatever, whatever, you know, arts admin organization and just say, hey, I'm a musician and I'm smart enough to read a, a an Excel spreadsheet, you yeah. know, hire me, you know, because we're, right. we're competing with the folks with the arts admin degrees, much less the MBAs and the and the law degrees and all that sort of thing is uh, is spending all of your time with one organization even attractive to you anymore again considering the portfolio style career that you've built would you take the one hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollar contract at the you know at again arts administration organization x or you know are the multiple streams of income something that you feel is more safe yeah um it honestly would just depend on the organization right mm. and what they're doing 
I think my ultimate goal would be to lead a large organization, but not for money. That's never been a, a factor to me. And, and my organizations I work with right now are, most of them are voluntary. Um, so this is just time that I choose to put into them because this is what I love to do. And I really believe in that cause. Um, I would love to have a seat at the table for a very large and influential organization, right? To really garner change. I think I'm, I, I, I'm so fortunate to be able to do it on a small scale and I have a lot of great ideas and things to say. And I would just love that more so exposure, right? To a larger audience. Mm-hmm. Well, well. Um, well, I, I I did want to talk a, a little bit about Opera NextGen, you know, an organization that you're at the head of, uh, one of the many things that you do. So I understand that Opera NextGen was sort of born during quarantine, as so many projects were. <laughs> yes. What makes Opera NextGen different? Is is this is this is this here to stay, or or was this just a you know we're all bored, so let's put something together? Yeah. Um, so I am not the founder. Um, the founder posted in a Facebook group. Um, and I, in all honesty, I was like, this name is cool. Um, and he was just kind of seeing who wanted to help out. Um, and we kind of got throwing messages back and forth via Facebook. And I was like, I have, you know, a marketing background. I had kind of those hard skills that I felt that I, you know, um, could put forth, right. And help this organization. Um, and then, I don't know. He, he was, he was wild enough to ask me if I would be interested in leading it, um, with no, you know, fiscal management experience at the time. And so I kind of spent my quarantine summer on YouTube, um, watching every tutorial I could on setting up a 501 C three, what structures look like talking to every single person I can reaching out, you know, to people at UMS, right. And just trying to get as much help as I could, in, in starting an organization. And I think at first, right, it, it came about in my, in my head, at least, right. It was to answer the answer or solve rather the problem of having no performances during quarantine. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was the plan. And then, you know, and I honestly had no idea if we were going to make it three months or if we were going to make it through one season, um, and we've just been so overwhelmed with the response, with the amount of applicants we got for the production, with the amount of folks that attended the productions and the webinars, with the support we've had on our social media following that we're like, no, let's, you know, let's keep, let's keep doing this again. And now we're really in kind of a, a, a reshaping and, and thinking because there was never you know, a one-year plan <laughs> when it, when it sure. was conceived, right? And so now it's like, well, I guess we're around to say, right, we got this going, like, let's just keep riding this as long as we can. Um, and I'm just the kind of person, you know, if it lasts five more years, great. If it lasts just to the end of the season, great. We did what we needed to do, right? It was mm -hmm. it was a success in its own right. Um, I mean, there are many unique things about it, right? We're doing virtual live remote performances, which you don't see a lot. Um, we had cast members in Pittsburgh, Wisconsin, Baltimore, New York, um, and our tech crew, bless Brittany, my technical director, <laughs> she, she, um, begged me, she was like, no, this can be pre-recorded. And I was like, it was already promised. This was already an idea, you know, before I came in the picture, um, and they figured it out and, you know, we were able to do it with fancy transitions and, and all the cast members being able to hear each other and singing, you know, 
uh, doing the cozy finale, right, all together. So there's that. We're a young company. Um, I think the oldest team member we have is is 36. So you're okay. really starting to hear from more progressive voices, right? And then also on the other hand of that is that everyone's an artist currently, right? Everyone's mm-hmm. performing right now. A lot of us are students. I'm still, you know, a full-time grad student. And so we can sit and have these conversations about what's not working for us right now, right? Like, what do we, what are we not getting, um, you know, from our own training, um, from our own performance experiences? And so I think that that just really ties into our mission of, you know, seeking accessibility within this art form because we're actually just talking to people who are involved in it right Mm -hmm. and then we can sit and have these candid discussions that oh i went to this performance and i really loved that they did x y and z or i had a terrible time auditioning for this company because of x y and z it's like well let's be sure not to do that and let's be sure to do that you know yeah the you know putting together these live virtual performances and all the technology involved with that is one thing but i feel like what's more daunting to a lot of people is the the paperwork and the maintenance of having the nonprofit i remember when you know even the word llc was relatively sparse <laughs> within our communities and now everybody has an llc you know right, having right. that nonprofit seems to be just the next step that's just a little more out of reach for a lot of people and of course we have have fiscal sponsorship programs and and all that sort of thing um, is is forming and maintaining um, a five hundred one c three something that you would recommend to to other folks again considering that there are fiscal sponsorships and all these sorts of things is it is there power in having it yourself you know despite yeah. all of the work and paperwork that's required yeah um, I mean I definitely think you know ultimately if you can do it on your own that that would be my recommendation because then you have complete say over what you you want your organization to look like mm-hmm. um when we had started our ensemble because that's more you know tied closer to a lot of um singers at school right it was a it was a colleague of mine um in the choral conducting program that i started with we had discussed you know oh if we do like a, a sponsorship with the school like that would be a lot easier for funding we can use their spaces and all of that Um, but our worry ultimately was that we wouldn't have full say right over what it looked like. Um, and in, in choosing to go the 501c3 route, I mean, it's, it's harder, right. With like what you were saying with the paperwork and keeping track of everything, but then you have full say over what happens, right. Mm -hmm. Even with fiscal sponsorship, there's limitations sometimes on like what funding you can apply for or the type of events that, um, you're putting out, um, but in all honesty, I, I don't know. I find that to be kind of the fun part. I like problem solving. Um, my mom has always said from the get go, I was like a puzzle kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so give me, you know, all the the little brainstorm things and, and logic puzzles. And so I like that kind of sitting and, and challenging myself and figuring it out. And this isn't working. So what can we do to fix this? Um, and, and, you know, all that I, I, I don't know. That's the part I kind of enjoy, which is rare. It's rare. Most people don't like that part, but (laughs) I want to see an ecosystem where, uh, more people put value in these sorts of grassroots organizations than, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the big box opera houses. I'm sure it has to be a challenge. I mean, let's, let's say that opera next gen has something planned, some sort of live performance. And Mm -hmm. at the last minute, one of your artists is called on by the Met or, you know, La Scala, and it would be right. very hard for them to turn that gig down. I, I wonder what are your thoughts on 
inspiring, you know, in our generation, in this next generation, the desire to prioritize the grassroots organizations, the organizations that we build, as opposed to running over to Europe, you know, every time they they call us. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of artists reach this point a little bit later on, and I've been told by many people I, I, I've gotten to there earlier, but again, with advocating for yourself, um, grassroots organizations, they prioritize, right, their talent, but genuinely like those relationships, right, mm -hmm. cultivating a community um, and being accommodating in any way, shape and form that they can. Um, and also will be, you know, calling you back frequently, right? And, and with the larger organizations, again, I haven't you know, sung at any large regional houses. So I can't speak to that as much, but I know that those contracts, right, are a lot more strict. Sure. Um, you're a lot more limited in what you can do both in and outside the opera house, right? They're, they're placing restrictions on you. And so I hope that people just learn that with the smaller orgs, right? Not that, not that larger houses don't value their artists, but it's, it's in a different way. I, I love that with Opera Next Gen, with our last production, pretty much every team member was able to interact with the cast, right? And I don't think you see that that much. So then the cast is really aware of like, oh, these are all volunteers, like these are artists, right? Mm -hmm. If I have an issue, like I can just talk to them, right? You know, it's not ever gonna be something out of reach if you're uncomfortable with something, you just have to, you know, stay quiet because you just feel like you, you can't say anything about it. Yeah. You know, speaking of, of staying quiet, I, I did want to uh, spend a couple of minutes talking about uh, your work with the Black Opera Alliance. And ever since I, you know, came on to BOA and learned more about the opera world, there's some real tea. There, there's some real drama <laughs> that, you know, we tend to remain quiet about, you know, maybe when it comes to individuals or specific opera houses. Are we doing the right thing? Are we making change by sort of keeping those in-house conversations in-house? Do you think we're going to have to come to a point to where we're saying, look, this singer is not supporting us or this opera house is problematic? How, how, how sustainable is it to keep these conversations under the rug, so to speak? Mm. Yeah, I mean... I am personally, you know, of the mindset that it it, it should be publicized, right? Because people will find out one way or another. Um, but I also know, you know, just speaking as like a queer black woman that functions in these spaces, I would rather just know up front, right? Sure. I, I don't like this, you know, kind of fake to my face and then behind my back, you're saying this and that and the other thing. Just let me know. Just let me know if you have an issue or you don't, you know, we're not on the same wave, wavelength um, with things that we support for if anything, protection of myself, right? Like I need to, I need to, in order to perform, right? I need to know that I'm in a safe and comfortable environment that I can be vulnerable mm -hmm. on stage, yeah. right? And so it's so important for me to know who is on my side and also who is not. And that's fine, right? More or less, you're never gonna agree with everyone, but at least for me, knowing allows me a little bit more freedom because I just I, I know what I need to do to get through it. Yeah. And, and you know, not to speak 
completely mysteriously, but we're talking about, you know, next generation and, you know, the issue of age and young artist programs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it just seems like the, uh, the, the folks of the generation that went through all of those things are expecting the next generation to have to go through them as well. And, and there, there seems to be a, a, a disconnect. It doesn't have to be hard for us just because it was hard for them. It was hard right. for the older generation. Right. Yeah. And that, and it's, it's unfortunate too. Cause like for me, and I totally agree with, with what you were saying, there's a, there's a definitely a friction there, but also that we're, I, I don't think they always realize that we're not um, ignoring the work that they did. Right. Mm-hmm. We would not be here today without a lot of them. Right. I would not be at CCM for graduate school. Right. Um, and so we're, we're not dismissing all that they went through to get to this point. We're just trying to build upon that, right? Yeah. And make it better for everyone, you know? Yeah. And that and that's going to keep happening to the generation that comes after us, right? They're going to be asking for different things than we're, what we're asking for right now. And then we're going to be looking back when we're older and be like, man, like these kids, you know, they were able to X, Y, and Z. I wish I could do that, you know, when I was in that position. Um, but I would never you know, fault them for that. Um, for me, I would, I, I would look at that and, you know, just be happy to think that, you know, my kids, my grandkids, my great grandkids will live in a world where they have more opportunities or, or are able to, you know, access those opportunities a lot easier than I was. Yeah. What's your, what's your charge to, um, Folks who understand, you know, the work of Opera Next Gen, understand the work of uh, the Black Opera Alliance, but, you know, aren't really don't really have their their hands in and haven't haven't rolled up their sleeves. I mean, it, it seems like these things could be so big if collectively we just, you know, put our energy there instead of putting our energy toward aspiring to. La Scala and the Met and, and all these places. I mean, do, do you think it's viable to just ask everyone, look, Come over here and we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's definitely a challenge, right? Uh, it's tough. And 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 we've had to deal with it in next gen as well. Um, you know, like we said, it's not easy work. Um, I, I just think we have to realize that it's not taking away from anything. My involvement with what I've been doing with both of those organizations has not made me feel like I'm doing any less than any person in my cohort in my master's right now. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, in the practice room any less. I'm still going to all my lessons, coachings, right? I got a 4.0. I, you know, finished pretty much everything last year with all my classes. That's just the, you know, I'm trying to graduate and get sure. out of school, you know. Um, but my work with the organizations, if anything, has informed me as an artist right um and 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 a lot of the behind the scenes stuff and then you kind of realize you're like oh that's what they're looking for and i walk into the room or oh you know this is how they what they talk about when the artists leave you know and what all that kind of works um but yeah i i wish people realize it will help you know it, it doesn't hurt and i feel like right now you know there's kind of this stigma that it will hurt um, and, and it's so unfortunate to see, I think, cause again, I think in, in, in the previous generation, it was performer or administrator and there wasn't, we didn't see a lot of overlap. We still don't see a lot of overlap. Right. But I yeah. think, I think the pandemic is changing that. 
Yeah. Well, before I ask you uh, my last question, how can folks learn more about you, Opera Next Gen, and all of the other kajillion things that you have your fingers in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I have a website, um, jamie-shark.com, um, Jamie, J-A-I-M-E. Um, Opera Next Gen, you can check us out. We're on all social media um, at Opera Next Gen, and then our website, opernextgen.org, um, and it's next N-E-X, no T. Got it. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, Black Opera Alliance, blackoperaalliance.org. Um, my choral ensemble in Cincinnati um, is hearushearthem.org. Um, we're doing some really cool stuff. If anyone is in the Cincinnati area um, this year, we're really working, you know, to decolonize that space. That doesn't get talked about a lot, right? Because there's so mm-hmm. much overlap with choir and school. Um, and so it's definitely a lot more restricted, um, in the type of works that are being performed. And so we're looking to, um, really combat that in that space. It's really incredible that that is a conversation that we even have to have because if black folks have a tradition of doing anything, it's singing in a choir, right. you know, right. <laughs> uh, but we, we, started the conversation, you know, I really appreciated the story that you shared about your father. So I wonder what would be your words, uh, your guidance your advice to folks whose parents and support groups don't quite get it yet or or, or don't see Mm. this sort of uh, profession as something viable, whether it's admin or or performance? What are your what are your words to them? Yeah, I mean, honestly, they don't have to. Right. It's 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 not their um, it's not their life. Um, I think you you need to determine what success looks like to you right not to someone else only to you that's really all that matters at the end of the day if if you're you know working one single job and you're happy with that if you're working eight jobs and you're happy with that it doesn't matter if if joe schmo is like why are you doing x y and z if that's what you want to do then just do it right that's yeah. what I, I get the question all the time like what, you're doing so many things like you're getting involved but that's what i want to do like, just let me live. Um, you know, and if I feel like it's too much, then I'll change that. You know, if I feel like I don't want to do the arts anymore at all, right? That will be a decision that I make. You know, parents are the same, no matter time, no place. They don't understand that us kids are going to make some mistakes. So to you other kids all across the land, there's no need to argue. Parents just don't understand. One year, my mom took me school shopping. It was me, my brother, my mom, oh, my pop, and my little sister. As we were closing up our conversation there, this is the first song that popped into my head when we talk about the relationship that our parents have mm-hmm. with our mm-hmm. careers. Where, where were you when Will Smith was talking about parents just so don't, don't understand? Were you DJing this? I was or? a mobile DJ. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And this was, this was one of the bops? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's kind of hard to dance. Kind of hard to dance to. But um, oh, that's funny. summertime worked that's really funny. well. Oh yeah, yeah, that's definitely a jam. Yeah. Um, I, before we get to the fourth movement, you know, talk to me about <laughs> your dad's relationship with your work. What what is your what does your dad think about I know Johanny Rautavara <laughs> or you know like do y'all have conversations about your work I can tell you that my dad does not listen to my show <laughs> period my <laughs> my 
my brothers know I my brothers know what I do. Yeah, but not what the music is or what I have to do to make that happen. So what do we need to do to get your dad listening to your time slot? I mean, tell him that there's going to be an arrangement of some Celine Dion or something. <laughs> that, Who does your dad uh, stand? I'm your lady. That That is his <laughs> favorite his track. Okay. Yeah. We, we need to... On piano? I, I bet you we could... Maybe I'll come back with that next week. Somebody has done that. Mm. There is some string quartet or something of that. You know, my parents, uh, especially some of my extended family, it's hard to begin to explain what I do. And I think I feel like I talked about this with uh, Dr. Kyler, but with all of the drama, you know, and, and to an extent tragedy that is going on in my family and, and goes on, when I come around talking about I'm trying to decolonize classical music, they're like, boy, get out of here. That, you know. <laughs> really? Uh, so, but I live. I so love it. <laughs> they, they take you down a peg or two right away? I mean, it's all it's all in jest. We're, we're just oh, laughing. But, but, you know, what, I, what my dad in particular um, really finds interesting is when I'm on other platforms talking about what I'm trying to do and, and my vision. One of, one of my favorite, uh, one of my dad's favorite Garrett McQueen performances is when I was on NPR News with Angela Davis and talking about all of those things like he he really got a kick out of that um, because I yes I'm talking about William Grant Still and all those folks I'm also talking about uh, Earth Wind and Fire we it's September officially we didn't play September maybe Damn. we'll do that next week but Earth Wind and Fire I'm talking about the Gap Band and all that stuff you know as classical music yeah I heard so that. you know affirming affirming that idea is you know again a way to a way to bring these folks in. So, you know, Devon Tynes, we, we, we need the arrangements. We, 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 I'm, I'm going to keep saying, because, okay, was a solution named in that article or no, or just the question. That's why I asked so what it's going to look so like. I'm, so I'm offering some suggestions. Right. Let's right. get the viol and the, what was the earlier, earlier cello, the arpeggione. Uh, or a gamba. Or, yeah, the gamba. Let, let's, let's get some, some black music on there. This mm. is going to be good. All right. Uh, we're going to get into the fourth movement. Um, as y'all know, I like to pull uh, examples from the repertoire of trills. I spent a while last week talking about um, uh, Donda, you know, talking about Kanye. Well, you know, since we recorded last, uh, Drake came out. A, a, a nice body of work. I'm not offering any opinions here. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm listening to it. I enjoy the music. We'll listen to a couple tracks after we get done, um, after we get done recording. But the one that I wanted to um, highlight that has a, a, a little violin trill in it is called Knife Talk. I also, you know, I have a, a, a slight bias because of the beginning of it. We won't hear it, but the beginning of it features a legendary Memphis rapper. And the whole aesthetic of this song is very much Memphis. When, when, what, what, mm. what, what we're about to hear is the sound of Memphis, the sound that I remember growing up with, my classical music, musical experience even. So here's a little bit of uh, the violin trill and all the accompanying parts from Drake's Knife Talk to get us into the fourth yeah. movement. Yeah. Yeah. I heard poppy outside, and he got the double R, drop it outside. Check the weather and it's getting real, I'll be outside. I'ma drop this shit and have these pussies dropping like some motherfucking yeah. type of nigga that can't look me in the eyes. I despise when I see you better put that fucking pride to the side. Many times. Hear those string trills in there? Drake is Drake is thinking about us. He's thinking about the instrumentalists. You you love the album art. I do too. That picture reminds <laughs> me of Lil Nas X. He's got one coming out, right? Yeah, he yeah he everybody is is flipping this art. Let, let's talk, uh, let, let's okay. talk about this for for just one quick second. 
Drake is notorious for creating album art that at first you're like, that's it, that's what it is, but that people replicate. Mm. So um, on his last uh, big studio album, Scorpion, it's just a black and white, a handsome black and white photo with the signature. That became everybody's headshot for <laughs> for a while. He came, his sort of uh, rap trappy album was called If You're Reading This, It's Too Late. And that's just, that was the album artwork just that written on a on a white background that was you know flipped and stylized just mm. as this is uh franklin willis shout out to franklin uh, he was on triloquy last summer he posted this with um instruments in front of each of the women and uh he said hashtag certified music teacher the <laughs> the the name <laughs> of the album is certified lover boy anyway so uh shout out to drake and shout out to everyone who um enjoyed clb because i'm enjoying that all right we're in the fourth movement. I got to talk a little bit of shit. So as I alluded to earlier, it is the one year anniversary since I was fired from my job and forced into an entrepreneurial space. And I am so grateful. I am beyond grateful for all of the different things that I have learned and the different types of conversations that I've been able to engage as someone working in the arts. I, I gave my spiel last week about the uh, the funding organizations and the foundations. You know, that was just a perspective that I did not have this time last year, not in the way I do now. And there there's so many other things, so many other tools that I can't uh, I can't wait to apply in whatever my my career turns into one of the things um, that is a little uh, a bit more difficult to talk about but that I wanted to speak to is that I've, I've had to be way more intentional about creating barriers for the sake of my own mental health and not only barriers from certain social media accounts and and from certain websites but from certain individuals Damn. over this year there have been a number of uh, situations where someone who I considered close, someone who I considered a friend, was a part of um, my diminution, a part of, of, of the slander of me, and a part of my erasure, my erasure from the work that I did for that organization. Um, there was, um, and I won't, you know, I won't get into it because it, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day to the, the point I'm trying to make, but I was not only a part of a project up there, but the deliverer of content that became a very, to me anyway, a very important project, a project that um, looks a little different now. It has a, a different voice on it, even though the content is the same. Um, I've, I've, I've had to create barriers and not have proximity to the people who, you know, purposefully or not are a part of framing work that I created at that organization, erasing my touch from it and putting something else out that is the same, but just, you know, has a, has a different name on it, even has a different proverbial face on it. I've, I've had to block those people off from me because that is actual pain. It's not just the principle of the thing. It's not just for the sake of it. It's actual harm that is caused when I see the erasure of my legacy at that institution. There was a Facebook thread that was going around um, uh, 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 over this past week. And, um, you know, that, that that's talking about uh, you know, uh, representation in advertising and what does it mean to, you know, define uh, a season of the world's best violinists 
and there are only the same old white violinists being represented, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the context of the Facebook thread. I won't name who says that said this because I don't I, I don't know if he wants it out there, but basically in the conversation he says, to be blunt, it's taking a toll to call things out. I have no idea what the right thing to do is, but it's clear when something is wrong and when something is a lie. And that's the thing. Beyond marketing and promotion, these are lies and it causes real damage and it hurts. So we can apply that idea not only to me and my own little personal bullshit that in a world of wildfires and floods and hurricanes and tornadoes doesn't actually matter. Okay, I I acknowledge that when I'm in my feelings, I also acknowledge that my feelings are real and that when people do things to erase blackness, whether it's an individual or just a general idea of 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 blackness in music, it causes harm because as this person wrote their lies and it's been so hard for me to deal with. And my way of coping with that is creating those barriers to protect myself, because at the end of the day, my coddling people who are going along Okay, with my erasure and 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 uh, means of making it seem like I did nothing for that organization when at the end of the day I did a lot. Okay, that is actually measurable. I I can't be I can't be close to that because it it causes me harm and uh, it inhibits my ability to get up and and keep going. We started the opus with Beyonce. Okay. Sometimes me putting on my proverbial heels and putting on my proverbial makeup and my proverbial dress, that first step is not quite enough if there is something just just pressing down on me. You know, something that is really just oppressing my feelings and my emotions and my ability to be creative. So as I protect myself, you know, from individuals who have been a part of that, it's really nothing personal. But I have to take self-care. I I, I have to I can't give if I don't got. And I'm not gonna have if all of my energy is spent mourning over individuals who have, you know, chosen to go along and to to try to, you know, be on my side as well. Uh, we don't usually have uh, musical um, transitions in the fourth movement, but on that certified uh, Lover Boy album, there's a Jay Z feature, and I think this sort of, you know, ties in with the um, with the Beyonce because this features Mister. Beyonce Knowles, yes, Jay-Z, uh, Sean Carter himself, and he says some really, he just, you know, what, remember when I pulled in the Lauren Hill, he said some things on this track that I needed to hear that day, so we're going to listen to a little bit of that as uh, we get to my final truth. Uh, I'm public enemy, niggas want to kill me and y'all want me to be friendly, niggas want sympathy after they want to end me, be those closest to it, be the very ones to envy. Shout out to the family. I don't want no friends no more, not many understand me. Everybody wants something. You know the price everything, but the value of nothing. But everybody is something. You know the price everything, but the value Never had a lot, nothing. this is all I You know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. There have been too many all-nighters that meet all-dayers. 
in my work, there have been too many times where the uh, where a project is the manifestation of multiple years of networking and being uh, making sure that I'm placed in certain situations. There is value behind that. I'm gonna um, I'm I'm gonna shout out uh, Nirmala because we we love uh, talking about Nirmala and and her relationship with Triloquy. That incredible music and that incredible conversation we had back in Opus uh, 25. Mm-hmm. I was up all night stayed up all day spoke on a panel and um and made sure i waited around so that i could meet Nirmala and so that i could you know uh build a relationship with her and then from there over the months you know continuing to work together in conjunction with the american composers forum you know feeling comfortable enough to invite her into the studio and to on you know onto triloquy hoping that she would say yes and then not only Nirmala agreeing to come on to the show but bringing instruments and bringing a musical uh a companion along with her and creating these sounds that we have forever. The issue I'm, I'm speaking to in my mind has nothing to do with that, but I'm naming that as an example. There is value behind all of that work. Now we can talk about what it costs to have folks in the studio and to record this and to master and mix this and X, Y, and Z. Yes, that's one thing, but there is value that goes beyond that. And that is what some people just don't quite see when they participate in some of these activities to erase Black folks, you know, like me, and you know, there are many of us who have done very important work, but because we we are no longer in relationship and collaboration with those organizations, you know, it's an attempt to just brush everything to the to the side. We we have to we have to start acknowledging the value of what it means for things to come into fruition, especially when we're talking about at the intersection of classical music and race and contemporary culture, because there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot of emotional labor, something that I know you can speak to and you can't necessarily put a price on two hours of emotional labor, but there's value there. There is certainly value there and there's cost there as well. So that's that, that that's, that's my first thing. Um, I could not, record today without speaking to what's going on down in in texas how how, how about you give me a moment to catch my breath Mm -hmm. and for anyone who you know may not know speak to what's going on the most restrictive uh, abortion parameters have been put in place which effectively uh overturns roe v wade at least for the for the moment part of it i think has been uh, suspended by a judge, but six weeks. Uh, and, and I've even seen some publications say about six. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what that means. Uh, it seems like that makes it a more of a gray area, but essentially that makes it to the point where, um, by the time a woman found out she was pregnant, it's too late. So, my reaction to that, especially sitting here um, as a man, a cisgendered man, men, and yes, hashtag all men need to shut, shut the up. fuck up and be accomplices to the work. Okay? Just shut the fuck up and figure out what you can do to make sure that this attack on women is being quelled. Now, let's not just speak uh, theoretically. Let's name examples. Did you see what TikTok did? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, the the internet is a player. The internet is a major player 
in all of these things. We have seen too many times when when uh, Twitter um, uh, soups up a narrative and change happens or when somebody on TikTok does something and we're seeing something. So the TikTokers have been spamming the the snitch website, which in itself is just horrific. A website to where where you're supposed to report women getting an abortion so they can be sued or go to jail and or whatever. And you could get $10,000. That is it's 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 hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that that is a thing but i need to stop being so shocked because you know this this is a story that women have been speaking for a life you know for generations and we're we're seeing the violent manifestations of not taking that stuff not taking that opposition seriously so shout out to let me give a uh, tiktok a sharp mm. <laughs> shout out <laughs> shout out and uh, a round of applause to tiktok we all especially the men we need to figure out what we're going to do to be of some assistance what we need to do what i need to do to be an ally and as you say a potential accomplice to making sure that the work is being done to get rid of this stuff you spoke today about uh voter restrictions that are also going on down mm -hmm. there it's right. pitiful yeah. it's pitiful so when i was in college uh, I took my I took a college girlfriend to the Planned Parenthood Planned Parenthood clinic mm -hmm. for a doctor appointment, and we were absolutely swarmed by people who thought that we were going in there for an abortion. And it didn't matter that I was right. standing there saying, "This is a doctor appointment." Well, there are better doctors than what are in there, and uh, maybe, but we could afford that one. Yeah. Yeah. And see, and that's the part of the conversation they don't they don't pay attention to. And quite frankly, it don't matter what she was going in there for. Mm -hmm. That is her right to right. go in there and get whatever taken care of she needs to get taken care of. I've seen a lot of and as I'm sure you have on Twitter, seen a lot of folks posting about, um, you know, I, I posted Texas Goddamn, <laughs> a, la, a la Nina Simone, yeah, you know, and, yeah. and folks talking about, oh, uh, Texas can go to hell, fuck Texas. And then the counter argument from people saying, I'm one of these progressive Texans. I'm somebody trying to, you know, do what I can. So you can't just cancel Texas altogether and da 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 and blah, blah, blah. This is my response to that. And this, these are my words to every single person down in Texas. It's time to get to work. Okay. There is no neutral. There is no staying home. There is no being a so-called ally in word or on social media. There are actionable steps that each and every one of you need to take to make sure that this state that you love so much doesn't turn into something that we don't recognize in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. If that means canvassing, if that means giving money, if that means making sure that the arts organization you love is not neutral and says something about it that's what needs to happen can you imagine you know i if, if i were running an opera company an orchestra anything down there my my organization would have a have a stance we would not be one of those organizations that is just standing in the wings waiting in the wings because if you're not fighting against this you you are maybe not an active proponent of it but you're a proponent of the perpetuation of it because you aren't doing anything to quell it you know i need to see all of the, the san antonio symphony you know the houston symphony the you know what 
what are the other cities? The, the the Dallas Symphony or whoever. You know, all of these ballet companies, all of these theaters. There are actionable steps that you can take as an organization and that you must take as an organization if you want to allege to be on the right side of, of what is, is going on here. Can you expand just a little bit as quickly as you can about the comparison to the Taliban and why that's ruinous? Why that... <sighs> This is my problem, and a lot of people have verbalized this better than than I can, but this, the Taliban ain't down there. The Taliban don't have nothing to do with Texas. Taliban don't have nothing to do with Governor Abbott. That is just good old-fashioned white America doing all of that. So don't compare, don't scapegoat the the harm and the violence on brown people in another part of the world. No, that is y'all down there. What about uh, the people that say don't compare it to um, what's, uh, what's the Handmaid's Tale? The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, because let's face it, The Handmaid's Tale is a white story. Yeah, and we know that that is not who is going to be the the heavy have the heaviest impact. I'm 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 gonna hold an opinion on the comparison to The Handmaid's Tale because. I I affirm that series in showing how incremental harm can become a reality. How, you know, this law and then this law and then this law can just build up until you're dealing with something like that. Now, maybe maybe the critique is that's something fiction and this is something real. And yes, this is something very real that's going on down there. So goddess be with us. And, you know, let me let me repeat myself, men. We do not have we do not have an opinion on on the thing that matters and that is relevant at all. What we need to do is figure out how we can be of assistance and and like I said, quelling this hatred and this war against women. Okay, America is a racist country that hates women. Okay, I know that y'all's vice president got on TV and said America is not a racist country. I disagree. Not only is America a racist country, America is a country that hates women. And this is my receipt. You can't argue with me when we see stuff like this happening. Okay, once we all get on that same page, we'll be able to have a chance of beginning to see some real movement. You know, Beyonce is from Texas, so I'm sure she has her money somewhere fighting on this as we all have. Thank y'all for listening. We'll see you next week.